you haven't noticed, if this is new for you, if you've not been a part of a, this kind of rhythm of counting down the weeks uh, to Christmas um, uh, through Advent and by lighting a candle, this is the fourth candle now, uh, one, two, uh, three, four. And actually, as I'm pointing to these candles, I'm reminded of the uh, festive lights that are uh, entwined around the candles here and then all up here on our trees and uh, around the room and in the lobby. And just want to say thanks again. We had uh, middle school and high school students that we kind of just let, let loose on our space this year and they decorated it for us. And not only that, but a number of them uh, drew uh, pictures and, and paintings and things that are hanging in our lobby that are with our theme of comfort and joy this year. And so uh, would you join me in just saying thank you to them again? To... <clears throat> this is uh, something that we as uh, followers of Jesus have chosen to do is to, is to walk through the four weeks of Advent and light a candle for each week. And then when we come together on Christmas Eve, we light the fifth candle, which is the Christ candle, again, pointing us to Jesus. And, and really, it's a, it's a simple practice that reminds us that Jesus is the light of the world and calls us to be lights where we are, uh, but also to help us as best as we possibly can with everything that is swirling around us to, to wait and anticipate and slowly go through a season that so many things around us it, are, are pressuring us to fly through this season and miss it. Every week, pausing to light a candle and, and waiting in anticipation, and in some way, that's meant to point us back to those that were waiting for Jesus when he was born some 2,000 years ago, uh, and for the people that God had promised to bring a Messiah, a Savior, a Rescuer, um, what that would have been like to wait and to wait and to wait. So that's what we've been doing. If you're wondering why we, we do this, that's why if you've been a part of us as a community for a while, you know that this is part of our rhythm, and I hope that the meaning is not lost, um, but it's very intentional of why we do this and what we hope that God does in us is point us to him and connect us to him in new ways. Um, so the, the, the passage that uh, Anna and Richard just read uh, is what we're gonna look at together uh, this morning. So would you, uh, would you pray with me and then we'll go to scripture together. God, as we've sung, as we've uh, listened to your word already, um, we want to be a people uh, who who declare you as good and as righteous and as holy, as all-powerful and as all-knowing, and as the one who decides, defines, and demonstrates love, not just to us as individuals and us as your church, but to all of humanity and all of creation. That God, you are merciful and forgiving and you, you love us. And so we declare that in this space. And at the very same time that we do that, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to to work and to move and to bring us to life in new ways and to reveal what, we, what it is that we need to hear from you. And again, as some of us need comfort in this season that can be crazy and difficult. And so, Holy Spirit, would you comfort us? Some of us can get busy and forget or ignore you. And so would you grab our attention? Would you convict us? Would you awaken us in a new way? And Jesus, Everything of this season points to you and is because of you. And so would you help us to be women and men who have our eyes focused on you and our ears attuned to your voice, even in this busy season. 
And so would we hear from you this morning? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So we've been, um, we've been in a series in Luke and Acts, and uh, we are today, um, we can celebrate this together, we are concluding uh, chapter one. Okay, so uh, some of you have been paying much more closer attention than others, but there are 80 verses in chapter one, which is longer than some other books in the New Testament, if you care. But Luke is very passionate about Jesus, and he deeply loves his friend Theophilus, who he calls most excellent. And he's writing to him to say, Jesus is really important, and Jesus is who you thought he was, uh, even though his people seem persecuted and struggling right now. And so you're doubting and questioning, but, but I want you to know Jesus is really who, who he says he was. And he, he writes this, and he, and he goes really long in the, in the first chapter. And so we're finishing the first chapter, can you believe that? Um, there's 24 chapters. It's going to take us a while. But what has happened so far is Lucas says, this is why I'm writing. And then he goes, hey, uh, somebody named John is going to be born. Somebody named Jesus is going to be born. And then um, John's mom gets pregnant and Jesus' moms get pregnant. And then uh, we're winding down this portion and there is this, there's this prophecy or this song that happens that's kind of odd. And so as you heard the verses read just now, they're kind of odd. And they, they, you kind of go, well, what's, what's happening here? But the very next verses that we'll read, we'll read together on Christmas Eve, and it's that really well-known passage in Luke chapter 2 that talks about the birth of Jesus and begins in those days, Caesar Augustus, and if you're familiar with it, it, it goes on. So the birth of Jesus is next, and the last thing that we have in the book of Luke is this, it's this weird, powerful, significant song-slash-prophecy by this really old dad named Zechariah. And Zechariah, if you've been following with us, or if you've read the first chapter of the book of Luke before, Zechariah is this, it doesn't say that he's a farmer, but we, we kind of know that he's a farmer in another town, and he comes in twice a year into Jerusalem to serve as a priest. And while getting to go into the holy space in the temple that he only gets to do, light the incense once in a lifetime as a priest in these two weeks a year that he serves, an angel meets him there, and the angel says, I know you're old, but you and your wife are going to have a child and it's a really significant child, and you're going to name him John. And the guy responds, this is a priest, responds with, can I have a sign? I don't know that I buy this. Can I have a sign? He, he doubts. He questions. I love that about him because we all can relate to him. He questions. I don't know what's really going on here. I don't know if I buy you weird, scary, powerful, really bright angel person in front of me. And the angel says to him, yeah, I'll give you a sign. You won't be able to speak until you name the child John. His name is going to be John, but you're going to name him John. Nobody's going to name him something else. And so we looked at that last week, but he's in silent. I don't know if, 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 you, can, if you understand what that really feels like or, or looks like for him to be silent for that long, but he's silent for a very long time. Very few of us are very silent. Now, you might say, like, I don't talk a lot, like I'm an introvert. I'm, I happen to be an introvert. That might sound weird because I... I'm up in front of people a lot, but I, I, I'm an introvert. I enjoy my time alone. I don't need to talk all the time. And uh, so I like, I like to be silent. But even when I realize when I'm silent and not talking, I might be texting or writing or doing, communicating in some way. Zechariah didn't have a smartphone. He wasn't writing his thoughts down in a journal. He was a farmer who was farming the land and working with the animals and had a lot of time to think because he could not speak. For whatever time it took him to leave the temple... On that day when he lost his voice, he left the temple and went home, and that scene, as we've kind of acknowledged, would be a little weird for a, a man to come home to his wife and not be able to speak, but somehow communicate, we're supposed to make a baby. 
But he does that, and then for nine months they're waiting to, for it to be born, and then John is born, and then they wait eight days to go to the circumcision site where they're going to circumcise him and name him, and that, that's when it happened. They named him at eight days. So it's a few days, nine months, and eight days. So between nine and ten months that he's not allowed to talk. Doesn't have the capacity to talk. Cannot speak. He's silent. Now, let that sink in for a moment. What would it be like to not be able to communicate for that long? You're just in your thoughts. I mean, you can try to be busy, but when you're not able to communicate with another person to be silent. I did a silent retreat once, and I think it was for eight hours. And um, it was mixed. There was parts of it that I really liked, and there was parts of it that were were really uncomfortable to actually eat meals with people and, and not speak to them. And again, some of you are like fantasizing about that right now. Like, oh, that would be glorious. But like, like nine months, no? Like nine months not be able to speak. You have time to reflect. You have time to reflect and think. And when we have time to do that, our minds go in so many different ways. And what happens is over the course of time, might not happen in the first day, might not happen in the first week, But if we're to be quiet for that long, we settle in and we actually move from our mind into our heart and we're aware of things more than we have been before. I have to believe that Zechariah became more aware of who he was as a person, what was actually going on deep inside of him. And even as I say that, we're aware that most of us don't reach that place very often, that it takes a long time to get there, that we might not even be aware of the things that we really long for and desire. But when we get from our heads into our hearts and we're able to sit with ourselves and go, what is it that I really want out of, out of this life, out of this existence? And our, our hearts and minds go in all different directions. I, I wonder if there are two words that kind of encapsulate everything that we begin to reflect on, everything that gets stirred up, everything that's present in that space and that moment. Here's the two words. I think one One direction that we go is the things that we dream about and that we want and that we hope for, that we long for, that could be where we want to travel, how we want a relationship to go, an accomplishment that we're working hard toward. We want to build something. We want to start something. We want to launch something, create something. We want to have an artistic dream of something that we want to put together and come together, and we've got all these dreams for it. When, when our hearts go in that direction, I, I think a word that kind of encapsulates all of that is, is hope. Then when we're able to slow down and reflect and move from our heads into our hearts, I think there's a ton of hope there that gets stirred up. What is it that we want? What is it that we desire? What is it that we long for? I think hope is like half of everything that goes on in that space. If hope is one half, I think the other half where some of your minds are going right now, is all of the things that can get in the way of any of that happening. All of the things that are broken about our world, all of the things that are evil, that threaten us, all of the things that are askew in our own life and our own way of thinking and feeling that just aren't, aren't healthy and good. All of the things that threaten what we really, really want. I, and I would put fear on that side. If we're really to slow down and to be silent 
and to be slow enough to move from our heads into our hearts, I think what we find there is a mixture of hope and fear. When Zachariah spends nine plus months not being able to talk to his wife, to his friends, to his coworkers, to people he passes on the street, I think he's very well aware of the hopes that he has for his life and now his family, he's going to have a child and the fear that is present in his world at that time. And being very clear on those two things, what comes out of him when he writes on a tablet, John is his name, and that in and of itself was his courageous act of obedience. When he writes that on a tablet, to the room that was there when John was gonna be circumcised eight days after he's born, all of a sudden, he gains his voice again. He can speak again. And what comes out of him at that point, we read his two things. In verse 64, it says that, that praises come out. It's the first thing to come out. And then in verse 67, as you heard this morning, is prophecy. And this weird mix of praise and prophecy show up in the form of a song. And he just, it just oozes out of him. And what we find in this song is the answer to all of our hopes and all of our fears. And what Zechariah is saying, at the moment that his eight-year-old son is being named, is a song about Jesus. A song about a baby that's not even been born yet. Now, I don't know what kind of counseling John needed later on in life when he found that out. That my dad sang a song about Jesus at my naming, at my circumcision, but that'd be a little hard to swallow. Because his dad was really, really excited about Jesus. And it was for him because he knew and because God had communicated to him because he had seen all the signs before and all of a sudden they lined up at this moment and he could see on into the future of everything that God had said, this is what I'm going to do. And he realized that God's word was true is that God fulfills his word. And it was all about God coming in the flesh as the person of Jesus that this young teenage girl, Mary, was pregnant with and about to give birth. And he sings this song and he goes, all of the hopes that I have and all of the fears that I have. Listen to how he talks about the fear side of it when pointing to Jesus. He says in verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And then verse 71, he says this, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And then bump down to the first part of 74, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. Zechariah says, you know, Jesus is, is, this, is this horn of salvation, and he's going to rescue us from our enemies. He's going to be salvation. He's going to be a rescuer. And to, to stop just for a moment and to go, a horn of salvation? Like you had, you had nine months of, of silence, and you came up with that picture? Like a horn of salvation. Like there's, couldn't there be a lot more, like a sword or a, you know, a mighty mountain or a, something like that, but a horn? Like what, what significant does a horn have? A horn is a sign of strength in that culture and at that time. So he's, he's saying, if you, can, if you have fear and you need to be saved and rescued, the strongest thing you can think of, that's what Jesus is like. He's like a horn of, of salvation. He's like the strength, his presence. If, uh, David uh, is a significant character throughout the Old Testament and God reveals so much through the life of David and, and David is a great person for us to look at because he's got all these great characteristics and all this mess that he makes of his life at the same time. But he writes all of these beautiful poems and songs that are collected in the book of Psalm, Psalms. And he says in, in Psalm 18, verse two, he says this, the Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn 
of my, my salvation, my stronghold. David in that space right there, when he's writing that, as he has been come within an inch of losing his life because Saul is the king and Saul is this twisted, messed up person who's turned his back on God and has come after David to try to kill him because he's threatened by him. And there's so much in that story and the history of it is recorded in, in First and Second Samuel. We read the whole story of all that's happened. But Samuel's out to kill David and David prays to God and says, God, will you save me? I have hardly any men my life is threatened. I'm running from cave to cave. I don't know where my next meal is. He's ragged. He's tired. He's threatened. He's in fear. And he says, God answers my prayer, and God is my rock and my refuge and my strength. He's my horn of salvation. He is the strength that has saved and preserved my life. God is the strongest around He's stronger than Saul, and Saul I can see in flesh and blood, and he's coming after me. And he's got spears and swords and armed men and shields, and my life means nothing to him. But God steps in and saves me. God is stronger than Saul. God is strength. And Zechariah is saying, Jesus is the horn of our salvation. He's the rescuer. And he's very specific. He says he rescues us from our enemies. He rescues us from our enemies. Now, we don't have nine months right now to spend together, but if we're just to take a deep breath and to think for a minute, what are the enemies in my world? What are the enemies that threaten me today? I mentioned last week, just briefly, um, the rise in addiction that we all know about, and some of us know it a little bit closer, right, because it's, it's us. Because over the last nearly two years now, that COVID has been a reality in our world and we're limited in so many ways that we weren't two years ago. And our need for intimacy and to avoid isolation and not be lonely, but to be with others and all that does with us and the stress and everything else and addictions, it gets fed within us, whether it's substance abuse, whether it's alcohol, whether it's lust and sexual addiction of some form or another, that those are things that begin to get their roots and their hooks into us and they threaten our very identity and our awareness of who we are and who others are. And it redefines how it is that we think about what's real in the world. Addiction is an enemy that is coming after us. And Zechariah is saying, and God's word is telling us and pointing us consistently that, that Jesus is stronger than addiction. And for some of us who have walked that road and know what that's like, there have been moments when we've said, I don't know that Jesus is stronger than my addiction. And thank God for answered prayer and thank God for faithful friends and family and thank God for resources and training and availability of helpful counselors and for some it's even to the point of medication that where we experience the truth that Jesus is this strong rescuer that frees us from things, enemies as strong as addiction that can redefine who we are and how we experience this existence. I have a friend who would tell you that he's a sex addict and yet he's been clean for four years now. And says it's, he can point to all of the people and resources and processes and meetings that were beneficial for him to go through a process from not leaving his addiction behind, but conquering it, at least for the last four years. And yet he'll tell you that he knows that the center of all of that was Jesus pursuing him and reaching him and freeing him from his addiction, that the thing that was sustaining his life at that point, he was freed from 
And Jesus is now the one who sustains his life and keeps him free. And then he hasn't written something like, Jesus is my horn of salvation, but he says, Jesus is my rescuer. An enemy in this life that we know is the reality of sin that brings on disease and pain and loss and ultimately death. And for some of us, it's our, our health, our physical health is the enemy that we find ourselves fighting over and over and over again. And I have, I have great news for you. That as we move through the book of Luke, one of the things Luke is doing over and over and over as we, as we read the rest of the chapters and we move through it over the next number of months is that Luke is bringing up over and over physical ailments, physical sickness, and even death. And he's telling stories, who he's, eyewitnesses that he's talked to that have experienced Jesus showing up as the strongest one when there's leprosy when there's blindness, when there's a crippled person and Jesus shows up and conquers that and is stronger than that and heals that. And so some of us have experienced that even in the here and now and others of us are still saying, Jesus, I need you to be my rescuer as I deal with this painful struggle of physical fill in the blank of whatever it is, this ailment, but that's our enemy. And Zechariah is saying, Jesus is stronger than that. He can conquer that fear, the limitation that that enemy brings on. I woke up this morning and like many of you, I looked outside and went, oh, it snowed. Awesome, it's beautiful. I didn't think it was gonna do that. I was watching the weather the night, last night and I, I wasn't sure if it was gonna get there but woke up and actually woke up to my youngest son, Owen, had, had texted after I had gone to sleep and said, I don't know that you're up or not but it's, it's snowing. Um, maybe we'll need to stay home from church tomorrow. And said, no, no, we're, no, he didn't write that but, but it was a heads up, like hey, just a heads up. Um, wake up, look outside, and I, that's, I mean, there's this sense of like, oh, it's Christmas decorations are around, it's Christmas season, we're counting down, we got a few more days till Christmas is here this last week, and oh, this is beautiful, and I, I also, moments after I had those thoughts rush through my mind, realized that when I, when I pull off 84 into my neighborhood, I go on this exit, um, it's, a, it's a roundabout circle, and on the grass circle, and the exit off of 84, have to be 30 or 40 tents. And I'm looking outside and appreciating the beauty of the snow and at the same time thinking about, I don't, I don't know if I consider their neighbors or not. Maybe God's working on me with that. But they're in my neighborhood and they're living there. And, and I, I quickly began to think, I so often wish they weren't there and I don't know what their life is like and what they're feeling like. But this morning, I'm very well aware that they are battling enemies that I don't battle. That they have, they have forces and realities of their life that I'm not familiar with. My house was warm when I woke up this morning. Theirs wasn't. I don't know, I do know this. I know that many of them struggle with mental illness. I know many people who struggle with living on the street right now are drug addicted. There's a small percentage of them that had the idea of that would be fun to avoid the realities and responsibilities of being connected to normal society. I'm gonna go live on the streets for a little while and then can't get out of it and are bound to it now. And even those enemies don't compete with the power and strength of Jesus when he says he is a rescuer and he is our salvation. 
And for those in our society right now, who with whatever enemy that they're losing to that's causing them to live on the street and seek to live life and sustain life in that way, that what this book tells me and what this song of praise and prophecy at the end of chapter one of the book of Luke is pointing to a savior that is stronger than that. And thank God, because none of us are, and none of our elected leaders are, and none of our systems in our city, in our world. And I've got friends in Los Angeles and San Francisco and Seattle who all can tell the same story, that they have people in their neighborhoods, their neighbors who are homeless and struggling with mental illness. And I've got a wife who works in the ER, and that's the majority of the people that she serves. And I've got a son who works for Portland Rescue Mission, one of the organizations that we have in our city that is seeking to make a dent and help people who are living on the streets. And so it's a very present reality. And the power of those enemies is very present, very well aware of it. And yet Jesus is even stronger. Whatever enemies that we have, Jesus has said, I am here to save you from them. All, it says that all who hate you, all who are against you, all who are seeking to destroy your life because you've linked it to or succumbed to something other than the person and work of Jesus. And then Zacharias, Zacharias switches it and he begins to talk about the hope that Jesus brings. And he phrases it this way, that Jesus and his salvation that he brings is for this, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And later on in verse 77, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. What Zechariah's song of praise and prophecy here is doing is saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna point to and celebrate Jesus because Jesus saves us from our enemies, from the things that bring fear in our life. He saves us from those because he's stronger. But he doesn't just leave us in neutral. He doesn't just clear out the enemies and leave us in a blank space where we're sitting in neutral and we can decide, what am I gonna do with my life? That place does not exist. I know we like to think that it does, but there is no middle ground, there is no independence of just sitting in neutral on blank. What Jesus does is saves us from something, but in the very, very same moment that he saves us from something, he saves us to something. There's no in-between where we sit in the middle and go, well, what am I to do? Where am I to go? I have everything open in front of me. Jesus saves us from our enemies and from our fear, and he saves us to something. And Zacharias sings of it right there when he says, we are freed from our enemies. We are rescued. We are saved from our enemies to the God of the universe. Jesus is our salvation to a relationship with the God of the universe. He forgives our sins. He offers us mercy. He's stronger than anything around us. And he says, I am saving you to be in relationship with the God of the universe. And so there is no middle ground. You either succumb to your enemies and following them or you are in relationship with God. Now the quality of that relationship and the contours of it and what that actually looks like, that is up for grabs. But when we are saved from our enemies by Jesus, we are saved to a relationship with God. We're called to be holy and righteous with God, which is why we need verse 77, which says we've been forgiven because none of us on our own are holy or righteous. We are very far from it. But Jesus who in the very next verses will be born as a, as a humble, 
as a humble baby, as a, as a baby, he actually puts himself in a vulnerable place in this dirty spot, in a manger dug in the dirt, in a dirty scene. God comes into the flesh. That baby grows into a strong savior who frees us to a relationship with God. And what that is like is what can be a many different things and it's what we're invited to, but we're saved to something. I had this moment, it was about uh, eight or 10 years ago and I was going through this moment where um, I was learning to be a dad in a whole nother place because my, my sons were entering into their teenage years um, and I all of a sudden wasn't as um, wonderful as a dad as uh, maybe they thought or I thought I was a little bit earlier and I was learning how to parent in a new way and, and struggling with feeling competent and incompetent at times. Um, where Abby and I's marriage was at that time was a whole new level of, of what it was like to be a married couple. Um, and I remember going through these growing pains of who am I and how am I to make my way in this world? This is about 10 years ago. And at the same time I was processing much of that, I had three different people in my life from three different places. One was a mentor, uh, one was an acquaintance, and one was an old friend. And God hasn't spoken to me like this very many times throughout my life. But in that season, from three different places, from three different relationships, I got the same message. And it was the most simple message, but it was the most profound and transformative message that I've heard. And it was this. God loves you as a beloved son. I don't know how many of you have seen Goodwill Hunting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the key piece of it right now if you haven't seen it, so you won't need to watch the whole thing, but it's a powerful movie, Good Will Hunting. The scene, if you've seen it, know what I'm talking about. Robin Williams is a, is a therapist, and Matt Damon is a, uh, is a dude that's is immensely smart, but a broken, broken family system, and he has to go to these counseling sessions, which he hates and fights, but they eventually become friends, and the climax of the movie is when Robin Williams, as a therapist, turns to, to Matt Damon, and all the abuse that he has suffered from foster homes and all these kinds of things. And he says to him, it's not your fault. You're staring at me as if you don't know what I'm talking about. But I know you know what I'm talking about. Robin Williams says, it's not your fault. And Matt Damon says, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, whatever. And he steps closer to him and he says, it's not your fault. And he goes, yeah. He goes, it's not your fault. And Matt Damon begins to cry, pushes him away at first, tries to look somewhere else. And Robin Williams doesn't slow down. He just says, it's not your fault. And he ends up just blubbering. And they embrace. And they go, isn't this great that we're going to win Oscars? And they do. <laughs> it's this powerful moment. I, I had my version of that. Of God loves you as a beloved son. I, I know that. Do you want to see my degrees? I got a couple degrees. I know this, okay? I've read the Bible. I know I'm a pastor. Like, I, I, this goes with the territory. I know this. And they said to again, you're, you're a beloved son. God sees you that. It's one way to think that that's true. It's another to hear it from God through loved and trusted friends. And it was in that moment that I went, this is a whole thing I gotta deal with. Because I said yes, I know that. But I don't know that I ever knew it deep inside. Zechariah is singing a song of how Jesus is our hope and conquers all of our fears. And he's saying that he frees us 
from any enemy in this world. And the rest of the book of Luke will tell us over and over and over again that Jesus is stronger than anything else, even death. But not only that, that he fulfills our greatest hopes and our greatest longings because there's no middle ground for us just to sit in. We're with God and that can look very different. It can look like we're just up here or we can look like we've just given our assent and said yes. But it's an invitation to be in a relationship with the God of the universe who loves you as a beloved daughter and a beloved son. And that should rock our worlds and redefine what is real and orient everything that we see and experience in this world and center it on and view it through the lens of the person and work of Jesus, which this week we get to be reminded started with God humbling himself and entering into our situation in a dirty manger, in a dirty scene some 2,000 years ago because we need to be rescued from enemies in the world that are real and are working hard right now. And Jesus rose after being born to about the age of 33 and was executed on a cross for me and for you, was buried in a tomb, conquered death, and rose again. We light candles to count down the weeks to his birth that reshapes all of history and all of hope and fear. And we take communion regularly to remind ourselves that he's conquered death and is strong enough for anything that we need in this world. So let's take communion together. If you don't have a cup or if you're watching online, if you want to grab something close to you, if you want to grab one of the cups in the lobby for here, we peel back the top layer and there's a little wafer and push down the tab and peel back. And so Jesus, as we pause again in our day to remind ourselves and to remember your story and who you are and what you've done for us, we acknowledge you in that weird phrase of the horn of salvation, that you are the strongest, that you are our rescuer, that you and you alone are our salvation. And would you help us to let go of anything else that has been our salvation and cling only to you and rely only to you? And will you help us and will you walk with us as we learn what it's like to be in relationship with you, the God of the universe? It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.